Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. In the year and a half that Talk Justice has been on the air, our conversations have crossed the gamut of civil legal aid issues. Not just covering a diversity of topics, we've pulled voices in from across the country, from business, government, and nonprofits, to lawyers, doctors, and even an NFL coach of the year. And that is one of the goals of this podcast, to capture the diverse coalition fighting for access to justice in the United States. However, a few months ago, it dawned on me while recording one of these episodes that we rarely hear from political conservatives that support civil legal aid. And this is a blind spot to a part of the coalition that helped create the Legal Services Corporation during the Nixon years that today vote to fund legal aid and promote one of our country's highest aspirations, equal justice under the law. So to better understand how Republicans, conservatives, and libertarians see and support civil legal aid, I'm joined by three guests. Congressman Tom Emmer is a Republican serving the 6th Congressional District of Minnesota and is the vice chair of the Congressional Civil Legal Services Caucus. Mark Levin is the chief policy counsel at the Council for Criminal Justice and a senior advisor to Right on Crime. And Thomas Berry is a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. I want to thank you all for being here with us. Now, Congressman, I wanted to start with you and get your perspective on how you see the access to justice problem. So what do you think are the causes to this crisis here in the United States? And why have you made this one of your issues? Limited resources is the number one uh, uh, challenge uh, in this area. Uh, You've got uh, private law firms who have weighed in uh, throughout my legal career uh, some 20, 30 years ago. You've got uh, LSC, who uh, is instrumental in helping uh, uh, get those uh, resources out to where they need to go. And then you just uh, have misunderstandings, uh, Jason. I I would argue that some of my conservative colleagues uh, are sometimes suspicious of civil aid because they get too hung up uh, on assuming that uh, LSC and the resources that LSC provides will be used to take advantage of some system, you know, for instance, secure welfare benefits that somebody doesn't deserve or gain public housing programs. Uh, Those uh, suspicions, uh, quite frankly, are unfounded. Uh, In my experience, conservatives and liberals uh, should be united in what is inherently a nonpartisan goal of securing equal justice under the law for everyone And I think uh, we can make a pragmatic argument for support that is carefully targeted uh, to efforts to alleviate the burdens on those who are frankly less fortunate. At the simplest level, I'd finish it by saying any individual who doesn't have to worry about obtaining legal counsel to resolve a civil matter is going to be much better able to focus on being a productive member of society. Uh, And that should be the, uh, the goal. And If you want, I can talk about uh, how successful LSC has been in central Minnesota and obviously many other parts of the country. That's great. And I do want to hear a little bit later about uh, kind of the impact that is happening in your neck of the woods. But to continue with the table setting here, uh, I wanted to ask Mark first, I mean, you've spent most of your career in criminal justice systems and criminal justice system reform. 
which is both a system and a reform movement largely animated by the power imbalance between the state and individual people in it. And so we've heard from the congressman that some of he, the problems that he sees, limited resources, and uh, this kind of suspiciousness that uh, he has debunked uh, from some of his conservative colleagues. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, coming from the criminal justice side, do you see this power imbalance as well as an issue in access to justice, access to civil justice in the U.S.? Well, absolutely. And of course, you're at a disadvantage, whether in the criminal or civil justice system, if you don't have the resources to have counsel. Uh, We've all seen examples where sometimes clients insist on representing themselves and it doesn't go well. Um, I clerked at the Fifth Circuit, so I read some handwritten petitions. uh, Because, of course, there's people in prison who the right to counsel that they may have had, uh, there's problems with extending that uh, after um, adjudication. And so they're, they're, you know, we still haven't fully uh, achieved the um, Gideon in practice, the, the right to counsel in criminal cases. Uh, but um, in, in the civil area, there really is the same necessity of having a check on government power, because, of course, there's some areas like where government is taking away your child. Uh, in the child welfare context, uh, that, that of course the government is in fact on the other side of the civil matter, but even in those where it isn't, uh, like a landlord-tenant dispute, for example, um, the it's the mechanism of government being used to evict someone. The sheriff is gonna come out, at least here I am in Texas, and evict you from your apartment. And of course that's become uh, highlighted during the COVID crisis uh, and, and many jurisdictions have provided counsel. So, but you can also think of other areas. Landlord tenant might be more identified with liberals, but you could also have, okay, we're going to have red flag laws. If you want to buy a gun, let's say that passes. Okay. So you're denied or you're placed on the no fly list and conservatives have actually had criticisms in both of those areas about due process and who's going to, again, they're civil, Who's going to be your advocate? What if there's a mistake? There have been people that have been mistakenly uh, placed on whether they're gang injunction lists or or no-fly lists or whatever. They just got the wrong person. They transposed names or whatever the mistake may have been. And that's why you need an advocate to navigate what are increasingly complex systems uh, to make sure that, uh, again, we're checking government, which is inherently an impulse for those of us who believe in limited government, that we want that check. So limited resources, check on uh, government overreach. Thomas, you are at Cato, which is a libertarian uh, think tank based in Washington, D.C. And I think the popular read of libertarians is one that prefers free market solutions over government services like legal aids. So I'm curious to how you come to the legal aid issue. Sure. Well, even if what you said is generally true for the mind run of cases, you know, private private services rather than government aid, I think we do have to go back to first principles a little bit when we're talking about legal disputes, uh, whether it's with the government or between two people, which is fundamentally if these are disputes to resolve the rights that, you know, people rightly have, whether it's a tort or, or whatever, that there's someone can often be justly owed um, something by someone else. And so if a wrong decision is reached um, because someone didn't have sufficient counsel or sufficient aid, that's an injustice. Um, It's not a matter of, you know, that it's simply welfare to give someone uh, the the counsel that they need uh, in in those disputes. It's, It's an injustice if someone loses because of they were on the right side, but they didn't have the appropriate counsel. So there can be debates about what the best way to solve that injustice is. And certainly I I think libertarians would want to start at least with free market solutions, like loosening up uh, unauthorized practice of law uh, regulations, which, which we'll probably talk in more depth later that that's 
kind of the lowest hanging fruit um, in this area. Um, but fundamentally, I think we agree, we, we all agree on the end goal, which is that if someone is rightfully owed something, um, the, the, you know, lack of counsel shouldn't be the reason uh, that they're not getting the, the justice that they're rightly owed. No, I think I think that's really interesting. We definitely will be touching on kind of the regulatory issues around this. And, and to get to that conversation, so I mentioned in the intro, the a couple months ago, we were taping one of these episodes and I had this, what I thought was going to be a controversial question uh, to the audience or to, to our panel, uh, similar to how you're situated now. And everyone just agreed. And I thought the question at a minimum was going to get me at least called a socialist by somebody, but I, I didn't get that. And so I'm hoping to use this opportunity now uh, with you three to, to maybe get a little bit of the controversy or a little bit more of the, the grind of the question that I was trying to ask uh, a few months back. So to, for context sake, the show is about rural access uh, to civil legal aid, which is uniquely worse off as compared to, to urban or suburban uh, Americans. Uh, and during that conversation, we focused a lot about the patchwork of economic failings that have happened in rural America over the past 30 or 40 years, divestment, collapse of family agriculture and domestic manufacturing, the lack of attorneys setting up shop in those communities. They all hinder access to justice and largely because the demand is no longer strong enough uh, to support the supply. And so my big controversial question that turned out not to be a controversy in that show was to ask whether or not that we should be treating justice in these communities as a public good and not as something that we expect the free market to deliver us from. And everyone in that show said that it needed to be treated as a public good and that the market was not going to fix the justice gap. So I now want to, to ask you all basically the similar question, and I'll start with you, Congressman, if that's all right. And just to get a sense, like you, you talked about limited resources in your opening comments. To what degree is the justice gap a market failure? Well, I, I think there's many different failures. I think it's more complicated than just saying it's an economic issue. Uh, it's certainly uh, from a policy standpoint, and you're asking somebody who a uh, pretty ardent supporter of uh, the bar. I, uh, from my perspective, uh, I, and Thomas and I probably will have uh, some disagreements about it, uh, loosening up the uh, practice of law and authorized practice of law, I think is going uh, against uh, what we should be doing. Policymakers uh, at a state level uh, should be looking at uh, loan forgiveness uh, programs, uh, not just for professionals like we do for dentists, because dentists are uh, short in uh, a greater Minnesota in rural areas. Uh, physicians are at a shortage, uh, family physicians. Everybody wants to be where the uh, where the service where the where the population is, uh, but I'll tell you, there's a renaissance going on in uh, these rural communities where people want to raise their children in more traditional American uh, uh, environments in small towns. Uh, so we should find policies that uh, not only encourage that but enable that. Uh, and I'm going to go back to uh, the experience that I had personally. By the way, uh, there's other things that we should be doing too. Uh, rather than loosening up uh, requirements on the unauthorized practice of law, let's start talking about uh, bringing our court system into the 21st century. We've got all kinds of technology. We can streamline these uh, processes that, you know, don't require four court appearances. You know, you can uh, you can have uh, new rules that apply and we should be uh, encouraging uh, the Bar Association to look at uh, 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 
what uh, programs that they're going to uh, roll out and test. I don't just because we've been doing it the way we used to do it doesn't mean that's the way we're going to be doing it in the future. We can deliver justice, I think, in a more affordable, a more efficient manner as we go forward. But uh, for me, I go back to uh, what Mark was saying. I think it's really important. Uh, it is a private public solution. This is not just the public, because once you turn it over to the government, you're going to lose one of the uh, one of the supporting backbones of this whole process. You know, I worked at a firm uh, 30 years ago, Jason, that uh, literally a, a criminal defense lawyer had a, a, a guy who had his car confiscated as a civil forfeiture because he had lent it to someone who decided to be involved in a drug deal, no fault of his own. But this was his primary means of getting back and forth to work and supporting his family. And guess what? If there hadn't been a private law firm that said to a young lawyer, you step in and you handle this uh, and get this uh, uh, car back before the government can sell it from out uh, from underneath him, uh, it, it wouldn't have happened in the public sector. So I don't think your question is controversial. But remember, uh, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. This is a complicated area. It's going to require private uh, solutions. Uh, it's going to require uh, public solutions, which is why I'm a big supporter of LSC. Uh, and it's also going to require our court system and bar associations to really start leaning in and, and uh, visioning what 21st century uh, legal practice, especially in the civil arena, what does it look like? So uh, maybe then to pull on that thread and, and Thomas, I, I wanted to definitely talk to you about the piece that you wrote recently for Cato about the Upsolve lawsuit in New York. Uh, for those that don't know, Upsolve is kind of a technology first bankruptcy solution platform for people that can't afford an attorney to take them through the bankruptcy process. And they wanted to be able to train non-lawyers, clergy members, members of the community to be able to provide legal advice to people in their flock, to people in their community. Uh, to be able to manage uh, their bankruptcy issue. But of course, because of unlicensed practice of law rules, they felt that going through that program would have been a, a breach of the law. It, it would have put those people in jeopardy. And you came out in favor of Upsolve in this particular uh, case. And just last week, we're taping this on May 31st, uh, a district court in, or a, a trial court in New York, rather, found in favor of Upsolve, and they're going to be able to go ahead and not worry about uh, unlicensed practice of law rules. Why was this particular issue worth writing about for you, Thomas? Why, why does this issue matter to you? Well, I think that um, of, uh, everybody agrees at the baseline that some uh, level of licensing or minimum standards for complex, you know, um, what, what have you, le legal questions that really require three years of legal education um, that's that's uncontroversial. But this was a case about essentially filling out forms that people who just had no contact whatsoever with the legal system were baffled by or they just they, they, they simply weren't uh, equipped or experienced enough to understand how to even take the first step when they receive um, one of these notices that they're being sued. And these are the kind of basic questions where there really is no evidence that you need to be a licensed attorney. Um, you need to have paid for three years of expensive legal education to be able to help someone with this basic problem. In fact, a lot of if you're a licensed patent attorney um, who's never worked on this type of issue before, you're probably less qualified 
uh, than Upsal's volunteers who specifically trained and worked on this one specific issue. So I think this was really the ideal test case at the margins of UPL laws to say, look, there has to be some limit where people who have specifically trained for relatively simple but still much needed um, uh, way to advise people um, can a, can supplement the the current pool um, of lawyers. And I think what libertarians in particular have to add to this debate is that we recognize that sometimes licensing requirements can have a protectionist you know um, angle to them. Sometimes people who have been licensed like to restrict the number of other people who are licensed and can compete with them. And I don't think lawyers are immune to that pressure. And so it's always good to um, be questioning whether each particular restriction to licensed lawyers is really for the benefit of the general public or whether there's some protectionist impulses that are maybe leading to a policy that's not in the best interest of the general public. And so, Congressman, I'd love to hear your response. To that. I don't know if you followed the Upsolve uh, case specifically, but from the, the background here, you know, you said you're a fervent defender of the bar. But as Thomas puts it, this is classic protectionism. This is protecting the cartel and creating a, a limit on who can be able to offer these services. And I'm, it, would, it would seem to me uh, maybe like a conflict of, of different views that you have there over this particular issue. So I'm curious to, to your response. No, no, it was interesting. I, I, I noticed that Thomas started it off with, uh, look, there are certain cases that due to the complexity uh, that you, uh, you really should uh, have uh, trained legal representation, people who have the experience. Uh, look, it's, it's, uh, you want to hire somebody that, uh, that actually knows what they're doing uh, and can get the result that you're looking for, or at least, at the very least, be honest with you. And tell you what your uh, what your opportunity for success really is. What does success look like? But then, as he went on, uh, he is. I was smiling because he's absolutely right. If you're licensed to practice law, like I was uh, for uh, 25 years, whatever it was, uh, there's going to be a little uh, uh, subconscious protectionism that's going to uh, work its way, and you you're you're going to want on first blush to defend. Uh, the bar, but that doesn't mean that you uh, stand in the way of of reform. That doesn't mean that you uh, can't. Uh, I think our our profession is very good, uh, quite frankly, at uh, taking a step back and saying, "Oh, okay, well maybe that's not necessary." But I, when I when I talk about defending it, I think Thomas would agree with this. It's that knee jerk reaction that you really don't need a license to uh, to practice law in any of these areas. Uh, quite frankly, our courts are already overburdened. Uh, when Mark was talking about reading some of those handwritten briefs, it's uh, it, there. There is a uh, there is a, a sincere need for uh, a professionally trained and experienced uh, legal advocate in many different circumstances. Not all, but in many. And uh, I, I, I'll continue to defend that. I will default first, like I always do to uh, defending the bar. Uh, it, and then uh, when you uh, see that reform is not only uh, possible, but it's warranted, I'll support it. And, and so in the case of the, the carve out for Upsolve, that's, that's one type of uh, a UPL carve out you would support? Hey, the judge made the decision. I, one thing that I learned was when you, uh, it doesn't matter what you think. Once the uh, once the judge has made his or her uh, decision, 
if you've got appeal possibilities, go ahead and appeal it. If you don't, uh, move on. So I think uh, the uh, I think the result speaks for itself. Mark, I want to pull you back into this and get your perspective. So you brought up Gideon earlier, which is the constitutional precedent that guaranteed or hopefully worked us towards guaranteeing lawyers for people charged of crimes in the United States, uh, which would definitely move us, at least on the criminal side of the docket, towards like this idea of justice being uh, a public good as opposed to a, a private market uh, a solution. And so I'm curious if you see anything, a similar need in the civil space, especially now around the United States at the state and local level, where there are these uh, movements to create rights to counsel, especially in eviction cases in, in many jurisdictions. Well, sure. And let me um, uh, thank you for bringing up the rural access to justice issue. There's 11 counties in Nebraska with not a single lawyer, for example. They actually, one thing they've done there is a combined legal program where you can get a law degree and an undergrad degree at the University of Nebraska uh, in six years instead of seven, uh, particularly targeted to folks who want to practice in rural areas. And, you know, I'm reminded there's not a shortage of lawyers who charge $500 an hour, right? But there's a shortage of lawyers that the average person uh, can afford. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that that um, I am uh, really think is valuable, both in the criminal and the civil context, is alternative dispute resolution, uh, such as mediation. And, of course, you have victim offender mediation, less commonly in the criminal system. And um, so, but I think that actually having kind of uh, both sides be on an even playing field in terms of both being able to have the resources, whether themselves or through public resources when there is a market failure because the person can't afford a lawyer or there are no lawyers in that area, that 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 would actually encourage the party that otherwise would have more leverage because they would be the only one who could afford good counsel to to settle or to go through an ADR process. Uh, if one party has this enormous advantage, there's no incentive. And so I think we have offices of um, dispute resolution uh, in some of the major counties here in Texas where I am. And I think judges uh, should encourage um, and, and maybe even in some instances side should uh, put pressure on that look before you we have a you know a, a backlog especially in the criminal courts after covid go talk to the mediator do it as we talked about through technology do it virtually if you need to and see if you can work this out and um uh, so i think you know it's been pointed out we have many times more lawyers per capita than japan none of us here want us to become more litigious but i think when you have um, both sides on something of an even playing field there's an incentive uh for both of them to perhaps um, move forward with trying to find another way to resolve the case. Um, and I also just want to say I really appreciate uh, the congressman bringing up forfeiture because that's a perfect example. Unfortunately, the the uh, um, virtually every court that's looked at looked at this has held there is no constitutional right, even though civil asset forfeiture is a punitive proceeding. It's a fiction that it's civil. It's styled as the government against your car or something. Uh, and of course, the the idea is it's only you should only lose your property if uh, you're convicted. But that's unfortunately not the way it works in most states. So um, we've created this fiction to circumvent effectively what would otherwise be a right to counsel if it were a criminal case. So it's a perfect example of where we need to uh, make sure this uh, uh, individuals have this access to a, an attorney. I see you nodding along, Congressman. Uh, I don't know if that's to pushing back against civil asset, for, asset forfeiture or to this idea that we need to extend the right to counsel in, into the civil space. I'm curious to your thoughts there. I don't have an issue with it. Again, I, I'll let the current players in the system 
make those decisions on extending the, uh, the that right into the civil system. But I was nodding because Mark is Mark. It, it, there are so many of these, uh, so many uh, limited. It's not like every time we turn around, there's one of these. But uh, civil forfeiture uh, commitment proceedings. There's so many issues uh, that I've encountered while I was practicing law that uh, they fly in the face of due process. When the government is taking your property, Mark, uh, the government's taking your property. That's why I was nodding. And I just, uh, I love what he's talking about in terms of, you know, when when I was practicing law, we already had uh, these uh, challenges in the civil system. It was already getting too expensive for people to uh, litigate uh, simple disputes. Uh, I, I was fortunate in that I got to try a whole bunch of cases at the district court level because I worked for a firm that literally said uh, we're not members of the interparty or the intercompany arbitration uh, agreement. So for uh, I mean this will date me, but for five hundred bucks, uh, this insurance company would send a property damage case over, and uh, I would try it in front of a, a jury. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. It's just too expensive. For the court system to operate that way. So you've got all kinds of hybrids that you can do. It's not just a, a mediation that Mark was talking about, which I might be a huge advocate for as well, but you've got the arbitration process. Many states have, uh, have arbitration laws that tell you exactly uh, how these things should be conducted. You have uh, jurists on the bench who, in my experience, really have uh, tried to develop their craft, if you will, their profession with summary jury trials, you know, abbreviated uh, proceedings uh, where people get to put in uh, a limited uh, amount of evidence. Uh, the uh, the question of fact uh, is really uh, honed in on so you don't have this week-long experience. It might be just a matter of, you know, two to four hours. Uh, and then you either have a, a, a independent finder of fact or you have a, a judge that's uh, making that decision. There are so many things uh, and opportunities for us going forward. Look, it comes back to what you started this interview with. I think all of us should be focused on making sure that everyone in this country has equal access and opportunity to justice. And that uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, finding ways that people can uh, represent themselves or find different advocates uh, in combination with the existing bar uh, in the uh, the folks that we have on the bench, whatever it might be, uh, we've got great opportunities going forward. Because in this country, unlike any other country, uh, in my experience on the face of the planet, uh, we really do care about the administration of justice. And that's a whole bunch of people. It's the uh, participants in the system. It's the uh, the judicial bar or bench. And it's uh, it's the lawyers and others that are uh, participating and LSC is a big part of that, which again is why I support it. And that, that's a good segue to, to what I wanted to talk about next. Because I hear a lot, uh, even if the paths we are taking to these issues, we're, we're all kind of winding up in the same place, at least in regards to the outcomes we're looking to see in, in the US as far as policy and access to justice is concerned. Oftentimes, however, when it, even if there's an agreement on outcomes, when it comes to the left and the right, there's a disagreement over cost. Uh, it's, the right tends to be a little bit harder on the deficit spending and want to keep costs down, while the left is more comfortable uh, spending more towards the size of the problem. And so I wanted to get a sense from you three about what we should be spending at the national level on the legal aid crisis. And for some background for our listeners, 
1980, LSD had a budget of $300 million, which when accounting for inflation would be about $900 million today. However, the last fiscal year budget for LSC was just $489 million, putting it about half of what accounting for inflation budget would have been in 1980. For fiscal year 2023, LSC asked for $1.26 billion, their largest ask uh, ever to date, I do believe. And this was with the stated goal of closing the access to justice gap by 75%. The Biden administration, by comparison, in its budget asked for $700 uh, million dollars, which I should note was echoed by uh, legal leadership of 161 of the country's largest corporations uh, in an open letter uh, to Congress last week. And so this is just to ask the question, and, and Congressman Emmer, I'll start with you because you have skin in this game as you get a vote uh, and the rest of us just get to watch from the outside. What's an appropriate number uh, for dealing with the access to justice crisis in the United States? Well, you're never going to have enough, Jason. So it's kind of like... Uh, What's the appropriate number for funding schools? What's the appropriate number for funding our, uh, our peace officers, our law enforcement? You got to go based on the budgets that they're presenting. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud that I signed a, uh, an appropriations letter again uh, this year supporting uh, funding for LSC uh, in the uh, fiscal year 2023. Uh, that, uh, I know that LSC received uh, almost 500 million in appropriations uh, in FY 2022. And I expect that uh, it, there will be uh, similar uh, funding going forward. The problem is though, uh, you're gonna have to, uh, I appreciate the way you teed it up, but it really isn't a right left problem. It's uh, it really is uh, a leadership problem in, in uh, Washington DC, uh, regardless of uh, your perspective as a Republican or a Democrat on this issue. Uh, we've got to start uh, being a little bit more responsible with once we uh, we appropriate these dollars, uh, we've got to have inspectors general to make sure that they're getting utilized uh, the way we expect. Plus, uh, folks, recognize that uh, there has been a substantial amount of money pumped into our economy uh, dating back to the uh, the pandemic with the CARES Act originally. Uh, and then again, a year ago, February, uh, with the uh, uh, American uh, Recovery Act, uh, with $1.9 trillion that, uh, quite frankly, $800 billion still had yet to be spent from the pre-existing CARES Act. So there's a lot of money out there. Uh, the Again, sum it up, uh, you can never, uh, we have to go based on the budgets that they're giving us, Jason. Uh, and we will scrutinize those. And I think if we have a, uh, any uh, additional action is to make sure that we put in the uh, supervisory stuff so that the money's going where uh, it's supposed to be going. And then if we need to, let's repurpose some of these dollars that are already out in the economy. Uh, that should be something that's on the table as well. Well, I know that LSC's budget does have a, a substantial line item for the IG and, and the, I, the inspector general does play a, a good role keeping uh, those tax dollars monies uh, spent well. Keep in mind, Jason, and not to interrupt, but it helps us when, when we do that, when the IG serves that function and does it well, it actually helps us to advocate for these dollars going forward. It actually helps us with our job. And, and with that, it, I couldn't quite uh, figure where you were landing. It sounded like you were in support of keeping funding about where it was at that 500 million is what the administration asking for too much? Is what LSC asking for too much right now? I'm curious, because even with the flood of CARES money 
and the other pandemic response bills, the access to justice gap persists. I want to see what they come out of uh, the Appropriations Committee. Maybe I've missed it. Maybe it already came out. But my understanding that that's in process right now. So I supported it uh, in uh, the last fiscal year, almost a half a billion dollars. Uh, I, I'm not going to advocate one way or the other. I'm going to wait and see what the Appropriations uh, uh, Committee ultimately uh, lands on and then uh, make my decision accordingly. But it's uh, it's something that I've supported since I came to Congress. I think uh, you and your guests can tell that it's uh, something that I'm a, a believer in uh, and I have a sincere I uh, believe that it's a very important uh, function that Congress should be uh, supporting. So we'll see when that final number's out uh, and what it's uh, what it's in uh, before I make any statements about that. Okay, uh, Mark, how about yourself? What should we be spending to tackle this problem? Well, uh, I, and I think we need to also look at it on the state level because there's three states, Alabama, Florida, and Idaho, that don't fund civil legal aid. And then there's more than a dozen states that do it solely out of court fees and fines and bar dues. And I mean, the idea that it's just the responsibility of attorneys or people uh, that are uh, appear in court to, to uh, provide support for this, I think, is, is really constrained. And of course, as you probably, all of you probably know, there's problems with people that are indigent who can't afford to pay fines and fees. And so there's problems. Those themselves can have a uh, problem with either limiting access to justice or causing people to um, have unpaid fines and fees and, and, and then uh, face penalties for that. So uh, I think that um, it is uh, important to look at this at the state level uh, as well. And, and one of the areas that uh, the congressman mentioned earlier in passing is very important, which is civil commitment. So people that are with mental illness or in some places now like Massachusetts, uh, if you have an overdose, instead of uh, subjecting you to the criminal justice system and bringing you to jail, you could be civilly committed to treatment. And uh, that was recently expanded to be a 24-7 process. And I think, I mean, who would say that, um, I mean, I think it's good that we're using that instead of the criminal process, but no one could, I think, with a straight face say you shouldn't be uh, uh, given due process, including uh, vigorous legal representation when you're, I mean, it's a loss of liberty comparable uh, or close to being comparable to being locked up because you are being um, put in a facility, even if it's just briefly uh, for your own benefit, theoretically. So, um, uh, but really there's, I think that one of the things we really have to kind of look at this in a way that's divorced from the context, because, you know, obviously liberals may be more concerned with someone um, on a gang list mistakenly, whereas conservatives may be more concerned with somebody on a red flag list and not being able to exercise their Second Amendment right. But really, it's not about, you know, whose ox is being gored. It's about, you know, due process. And um, we ought to care about that no matter whether, you know, ideologically we're more uh, empathetic towards one individual or another. I think that's a really Good point. And, and that's a transition to something that I, I really wanted to stay on you for a second, Mark, is that you have been a part of the criminal justice reform movement for many years. Uh, you have been a part of the criminal justice reform movement for many years. And I think as civil, the civil legal aid movement is getting going, there's lessons to be learned between, uh, between the two. And so I mean, what can civil legal aid reform learn from kind of the bipartisan criminal justice reform movement of the last decade? Well, I think that uh, there really is a um, analogy here because um, uh, I think both 
people uh, on the right and the left are concerned about government overreach. And again, it, the context is really where um, you see kind of, uh, but I mean, I think the child welfare and even child custody, because I, I had pointed out Judge Katanji Brown had signed and uh, drafted, wrote an amicus brief for the ABA arguing for a right to counsel and child custody case out of Alaska, uh, where one of the parents couldn't afford a lawyer. Um, now that's a, you know, tougher road to hoe than the child welfare because the government is taking away your kid. But we're in the child custody context, we're using the government court system to decide who gets, you know, potentially one parent never being able to see their child again, which is a pretty, um, pretty significant thing. Um, so I think that um, uh, there was a strong argument. The courts, of course, rejected that um, uh, in, in the child custody context. But the, I think that the brief made a very strong argument. And uh, if anything, I would, I've seen in Texas and other states more concern on the right about children being taken away from their parents because of the parent is, um, you know, using uh, what may be, uh, you know, uh, controversial or some, you know, for example, uh, uh, ways of bringing up their child that are consistent with their religious belief, for example. Um, so um, that's an area that, that uh, so again, when I think you can kind of say uh, that this is, um, goes to the founding ideals of our country, that, uh, that we value the individual uh, and their rights and liberties, uh, that, uh, and that, um, we're using, even if the government isn't on the other side, so it's a, it's a custody, but not a child welfare case. We're still using the mechanisms of government to make a decision that's going to deprive somebody of a very significant, um, liberty or right or freedom. Uh, and that, um, that they shouldn't have one hand tied behind their back during that process by not having counsel. So this kind of pivots into where I, want, I was hoping we could wrap this conversation up, which is essentially in something that I mentioned at the top of the show is you know, there's a coalition of people working on uh, these issues. And I'm super interested having you three here to understand how we increase that coalition, especially bringing in more folks uh, from the political right. Uh, Congressman at the top of the show talked about uh, some of his colleagues that are skeptical uh, of something like legal aid. And so with that in mind, Thomas, I wanted to start with you. We kind of heard some lessons from Mark about thinking about what has been successful for criminal justice reform and how that bring that into civil law reform. What's your perspective? Where do you think is the most likely place to, to build that coalition uh, from where you stand? Yeah, I completely agree with Mark and echo uh, everything he said. I think the focus, especially to start on um, cases, civil cases, that's the government against an individual are key to recruiting conservatives and libertarians to this cause. Um, in many other areas, uh, a big part of the current libertarian and conservative legal movement is pointing out how administrative civil functions, um, all of the procedures that people are brought before administrative agencies are in many ways just as accusatorial and, and just as adversarial as criminal proceedings. And for example, expanding the right to a jury in those proceedings, or rights, rights of due process, um, that's a big part of the conservative legal movement. Uh, less so the right to counsel, but really it fits in. It, it's a logical extension of, of that movement in the other areas. If these proceedings really are becoming more and more indistinguishable from criminal proceedings because it's the government against an individual and the penalties can be just as severe, monetary penalties and People will say, oh, well, there's no prison. But if you don't pay the monetary fines, there can be prison. Um, so I think that that's that's a key place to start is saying at the very least, 
these adversarial proceedings against the government uh, that are almost indistinguishable from criminal proceedings. Uh, people should have uh, the same uh, expectations of counsel that they do in criminal proceedings. And, and Congressman Emmer, a similar but a differently phrased question for you, uh, both thinking about your colleagues that you work with, but also about your constituents. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, top of the show, there's folks on the right uh, that are not a fan of civil legal aid uh, or, or LSE. Both the Trump and Reagan administrations tried to zero out LSC's budget multiple times during their period in power. Congressman, retired Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner, no fan of, of the Legal Services Corporation and, and its model. Uh, so I'm curious, like in these conversations with your conservative colleagues that are not fans of LSC or, or legal aid, do you find, I guess one, where do you find the disconnect? Is it just this idea that it's government funds being spent poorly or, or is it something else? And secondly, do you find them at all persuadable uh, to your point of view? And if so, what has proven to be the most persuadable approach with your conservative colleagues? Well, it's a, we can point to uh, Republicans and Democrats alike who have not been champions of this sort of thing over the years. Uh, although you did bring a smile to my face uh, with uh, the uh, former representative from Wisconsin, who uh, I actually, uh, the office that I'm in in the Cannon House office building was uh, was occupied by a young uh, uh, Kennedy way back in the day. And I found out that uh, he was the only uh, famous uh, resident of that office because Jim Sensenbrenner had it for a period of time. But that's neither here nor there. When it comes down to uh, how you get support for this thing, I wouldn't assume that people uh, on the right or the left automatically default to some uh, ideological bent. I don't think that's what it's about. I think when you, uh, you start talking about these situations that Thomas just talked about, uh, the government is getting more and more powerful with these administrative law pr proceedings where uh, you're called before an administrative law judge. And, and what are your options after it's over? I mean, I, that's why the idea that uh, six of your peers, 12 of your peers, or maybe a streamlined approach, a summary jury trial, a, uh, an arbitration proceeding uh, where you have someone outside of the government actually uh, being the fact finder uh, and resolving these things. Uh, you start talking about uh, cases like that. You start talking about civil forfeiture of uh, personal property, whether it be a car or maybe uh, something much greater than that. Uh, these are injustices that I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's not a partisan issue. Uh, that's an American issue. We don't believe in that sort of uh, heavy handed uh, uh, approach uh, by our authorities. And, and that's what we're here for is to try and protect that. So for me, it's uh, that argument that uh, these are people that uh, happen to be uh, at the uh, at the rung of the ladder on the economic spectrum that they can't get the help uh, that they not only deserve, but they require uh, in order to make sure that justice is actually served. Uh, and then I'll tell you, my experience over the last uh, eight years has been uh, members who are in more densely populated areas uh, tend to be more aware of these issues uh, than uh, folks uh, who are representing primarily rural communities uh, even though the need is still great in, uh, for instance, I call it greater Minnesota, but that's the, uh, the smaller communities uh, across our state. And you just you have to, as you advocate for this sort of thing, you find uh, members that just aren't aware of it. Right. There, there are other things that are on their priority list. 
they're not aware of it. Once they start to become educated, you know, it's not that uh, it's not that big a leap for them to suddenly be voting in favor of uh, funding for LSC. So I, I've actually had a, a good experience with it over my time in Congress, and hopefully that'll continue. Well, I like uh, to leave these shows on the most positive note possible. And so I think with that hope of more bipartisan work towards supporting LSC and legal aid is a, is a great note to end on. And with that, I would like to thank you, Congressman Emmer, Mark Levin, and Thomas Berry for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Tache. For everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.